You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Good afternoon, uh, everyone. Good morning or good evening, depending on what time zone in the U.S. you might be in. Um, I'm Vikram Iyer, as Crystal mentioned. Uh, I used to work in the Obama White House. I used to work in the private sector for a technology company. Uh, and now I'm the deputy director for the ACLU's National Political Advocacy Department. Um, but today I'm coming as to you as a member of the Inforum Advisory Board, which is an arm of the Commonwealth Club. Uh, and it is arm in which we incubate a lot of new ideas, some controversial ideas, but also stretching existing conceptions of public policy to new limits. And that's why we couldn't be more excited to be here today with entrepreneur, political candidate, math enthusiast, all around savant, Andrew Yang. Um, as many of you know, Andrew made waves with a rousing 2020 presidential campaign, which we're going to get into later today. Um, and he ran on a core tenet of an idea that then was deemed a little laughable, universal basic income, or maybe a little too futuristic or a little bit too extreme. But now, just a few uh, months, years later, uh, dozens of mayors around the country have adopted the program through various pilot policy programs in their states to really address raising income floors in this country. So over a year later, he actually comes to us today with a new concept, uh, a new third political party, the Forward Party, also the, the title of his book, um, Forward Notes on a Future of Democracy. And our conversation today is to ask, there it is, beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful cover there. Our conversation here today is to focus on, just like UBI stuck on his earlier campaign, is this concept going to stuck? Uh, going to stick rather. And we, we couldn't be more excited to have him today, but we also want to make sure that we hold his theories, his thesis, and his ideas to account. So a reminder to the audience, if you'd like to ask a question, please ask it in the chat or comment section, and we'll definitely try to get into as many questions as we possibly can towards the end of the program. Um, but with that, let's get started. Andrew Yang, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Vikram. It's great to be here. Uh, and I certainly owe a, a tremendous number of people uh, the fact that we were able to mainstream universal basic income over the 2020 campaign. It's not my idea. Uh, it was an idea that was championed by Martin Luther King, uh, Thomas Paine, and many, many others. Uh, but now it is mainstream accepted policy. Uh, and we're seeing with the child tax credit, it's lifting millions of families out of poverty. Uh, we should be leaning into that. Um, to the extent that there's going to be a huge idea that I'm now going to be associated with, um, it is open primaries and ranked choice voting as the way to break up this polarization that's destroying us and also will unlock the energy for universal basic income and many other solutions. So UBI is the what, and then the how is going to be open primaries and ranked choice voting, which by the way, will also make us more sane and reasonable which I, I suspect a lot of people um, like the sound of right now, because it, it doesn't seem like that's the order of the, the day or the era, uh, sanity and reasonableness. Uh, unfortunately, it, it feels like extremity is winning. And a lot of what my work is about now is showing that extremity will win <laughs> because the system's designed to reward it. And so we have to change the setting so that the system will actually reward compromise, reasonableness, and getting things done. And that's a really good place to start, because in your book, you actually lay out a few policy solutions 
um, in terms of what Americans need right now. And then you speak specifically to election process and democracy reform as a way to get there. And I'd like to dig into that just a bit. Um, you specifically lay out that, you know, taking the boots um, off our necks as a means of growing within the economy and making sure that we're not beholden to debt in this country is important. Thus, you advance universal basic income as a tenant. You also talk about decoupling health care from employment alone. You know, 5.5 million Americans last year during COVID lost health care when they had full-time work. We need to do something about that is something that your book calls for. You also talk about tax reform, corporate tax dodgers and corporate malfeasance that is withholding um, a, a lot of people from paying their paying a fair share into the economy. And you also talk about a, a job shortage in this country being defined as not necessarily a job shortage, but rather um, that we might need to fill more jobs, but it's not necessarily that we don't have work to fill. Your book specifically cites Civil Society of Engineers, the American Society of Civil Engineers, sorry, um, articulate that we need to make $4.6 trillion in infrastructure investments. So across all of these areas, UBI, decoupling healthcare from employment alone and universalizing a healthcare system, tax reform, and making sure we're investing in our infrastructure and economy. Those sound like really meaty issues, Andrew. And I'm curious why you think something like ranked choice voting or an open primary approach is going to get past a lot of the ideological impasses and special interest groups that all are stakeholders that we have to account for when it comes to moving the ball on any single one of those issues. Well, that's the great thing about open primaries and ranked choice voting, Vikram, is that uh, enough Americans can get together and just have a ballot initiative in half of the states around the country, including California. And you've seen it sometimes good, sometimes bad. I know sometimes you're like, hey, this is great. Sometimes, you know, a little less so. Um, but if you have enough people to get together, we can actually improve the incentives that our leaders are subject to. Uh, and I'm going to suggest that's going to be necessary for us to address some of the challenges that you just listed. Right now, there, there are a number of incentives. I said, oh, I can go through this to, to some detail. Um, but right now, if you are a member of Congress, seven out of 10 Americans are not happy with the job the body is doing. Uh, the US approval rate of Congress is 28% right now. Uh, but there's a 92% chance that you individually will get your job back if you decide to run again. Uh, and so you look at that and say, okay, why is that mismatch so uh, so severe? We're at 28% satisfaction with the body and 92% reelection. And the reason is that 83% of these seats are either safely Democratic or safely Republican. So for you, your task in getting reelected is not to deliver for your constituents, you, you know, you imagine it might be. It's actually to placate the 10 to 20% most extreme voters uh, that are hyper-partisan and sometimes very, very weird. <laughs> And so if you keep an issue alive and inflame your supporters about it and blame the other side, you're actually increasing the chances of you getting reelected. And one of the examples of this in real life was when Marco Rubio proposed this bipartisan approach to immigration. And then everyone in his own party got really mad at him. And then he was like, oh, no, just kidding, just kidding. Because it turns out that if you compromise on that, you're more likely to get primaried and cast out of your party. Um, it actually makes more sense to keep the problem around and blame the other side and, and get them mad. That's actually job security for you. That's job security in 83% of these districts. So if you look from a national perspective, and I know most of you are probably in California and it's very blue, but if you look at it from a national perspective, you're looking up being like, why does it seem like a lot of this like doesn't make any sense? Uh, and it's because the incentives have actually driven people into corners uh, and made it so that they, they're going to try and fight anything from happening. Um, and that's a pretty good summary of where we are right now in the United States of America. 
And so the, the goal has to be to try and get someone out of the corner and say, look, I get it right now. You're scared de- to, to death of the 10 to 20 percent of the most extreme people in your district voting you out. Get it, you know, just incentives. So how about we change it so that instead of having to get through the 10 to 20 percent, you have to appeal to 51 percent of the people in your district, not just Republicans in this example, um, but general population. Uh, and that's through open primaries and ranked choice voting. Just like that, you would see these legislators become much more prone to compromise and reasonable. And I can cite a real life example that many of you might have seen in the news. Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, the only Republican senator who voted to impeach Donald Trump, who was also up for reelection next year. Think about that. Republican senator votes to impeach Donald Trump up for reelection. Her approval rating among Alaskan Republicans right now is 6%. Political suicide. <laughs> But Alaska made this process change where there is no more party primary. It's an open primary. So all of a sudden, Senator Murkowski can go to the general Alaskan public and say, hey, I'm an independent person. I represent you. Like, give me another chance. And she has a fighting chance. You see how it works? Like that incentive switch gave her the ability to do what she thought was right. So if we go around the country and enable more legislators to do what they think is right, then you'll see, again, reasonableness go up, compromise go up, uh, and the polarization go down. And I, I think that might be a good place to to take a step back to and look at what we're actually trying to solve for here, because I think we'll take a moment to dig into the actual RCB and open primary process. But polarization is something that um, this book speaks to deeply, and it's certainly something that you likely saw on, on the trail, but I want to I push back on this idea a little bit. Certainly, we do see polarization when it comes to whether Congress can get a budget reconciliation deal done right now or an infrastructure package done right now. But is it fair to say that some of that polarization has been a little asymmetrical, that maybe over the past few decades, the Republican Party has lurched further and further rightward, while the Democrats have, until very recently, arguably maybe the last presidential campaign cycle, mostly stayed put or shifted slightly um, in one direction or another, and that you know the, the Republican Party is more ideologically unified in its approach. The Democratic Party is now a, a combination of a, of a larger tent of disparate interests. In other words, is the problem with today's two-party system um, that the parties themselves are too polarized or that they're too similar in that they're captured by very few interests and very few people control that capital? I'm just wondering, how does introducing a new party or you breaking away from the Democratic Party start to ease that tension and start to create the unification that you've been seeking as articulated in the book? Well, uh, Vikram, I would agree with you that the parties are facing different types of issues uh, associated with <laughs> like the extremity and polarization. Uh, and I, I would go so far as to say that this structural failure is something that could lead to authoritarianism in the U.S. because you have a, a relatively narrow strain of people um, on the right who have uh, you know fallen under the thrall of Trump. And there are very, very few safeguards. Um, and that, that's a very different set of issues than you have on the left. Um, and, you know, the, the left, to the extent there are distortions, it's that certain people uh, have uh, an extraordinarily high vested interest in uh, influencing policy. And so they're, they're in there um, assiduously uh, in, in the party primaries. You know, I, right now, I'm just going to throw out a part like Big Pharma. <laughs> you know, like Big Pharma is like, ooh, I got to get in there and make sure that, that things don't change. 
Um, so the distortions are different on each side. And I agree with you, like it's a little bit of an oversimplification to say polarization because it makes it sound like it's the same on both sides. Um, when I, I would agree that there, there are different um, issues attendant uh, to each. And that I, I would also agree that the Republican Party has kind of gone more in, in uniform lockstep in a particular direction, whereas the Democratic Party is somewhat more um, uh, diverse. Um, and I think part of this, this really is, though, it's an incentives issue. It's like, uh, like if you were to line up a bunch of Republicans, like, are they really this uniform in their point of view? <laughs> it's like right now they seem very uniform in their point of view because if they fall out of line, they get cast out. You know, and, and so, so it's something that I'd, I'd, I'm going to suggest it might be a very, very important task for us to enable some subset of Republicans to act like Senator Murkowski did and say, you know what, I like I'm a Republican. And I think Trump is, um, you know, wrong, wrong about this or that. I mean, if you get a critical mass of Republicans with that ability, that might be the difference between democracy surviving and democracy failing, truly not to be overly dramatic, but that's where we are. And part of what we're fighting for in that survival, you argue in your book, is a demand or an urgent demand to rethink how we think about numbers that define the American experience. Um, I know that uh, as, as when we talk about math in the traditional Andrew Yang campaign sense, we mean it in terms of data-driven solution using empirics to motivate our policymaking. But in this book, you actually talk about math in a, in a slightly different context, um, and, and I, as, a, as an Asian person that's bad at math, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but I think part of what your articulation is that the indicators that inform American outcomes, uh, unemployment rates, productivity gains, GDP, new firm starts, labor participation rates, they have been indicators of how, how, how our markets evolve and thrive and sustain headwinds, but maybe they're not the right indicators anymore. Love you to say a little bit more on that because you write in your book that we as human beings ought to be the purpose of the economy and not simply its fuel. And as we see new gains in automation, as we see new gains in technology, um, how we capture the time and efficiencies of people or people being offset or people being displaced all might demand a new orientation for how we think about our wealth, our growth, and how we protect human conditions here. Um, so what do you mean when you say that we need a new set of numbers by which we articulate what we're actually fighting for here in the first place? Sure. I mean, if you were to take the headline indicators, even now you could argue that the economy is healthy in terms of GDP or uh, certainly stock market performance um, um, and certain labor market indicators. And then if you were to look at basic human measurements like our health, our mental health, our life expectancy, infant mortality, access to clean drinking water, like the basics, um, we're doing terribly, you know, <laughs> so we're 28th in the world with a down arrow associated with it. Uh, and when I was running for president, I would ask people, it's like, hey, stock market price at record highs. What else are at record highs? And they'd think for a second and they'd be like anxiety, depression, suicide, student loan debt, uh, medical bankruptcies. Um, you know, like, like it, it's miserable out there for a lot of people. Um, and we're getting distracted by these economic indicators that paper over all of the the, uh, the disintegration, really. So what I, I, I was proposing, I am proposing, is that we use our own well-being as the economic indicators, which would be much more indicative. Um, and then imagine if we paid as much attention to our environmental quality or our mental health as we do like the stock market price of Google, where it just like went, got put up there all the time and was like, hey, another terrible quarter, <laughs> you know, like our... our 
Like our kids' mental health got a little bit worse over the last three months, which, by the way, it is getting worse in part because of social media and the rest of it. Um, and so if you have the wrong measurements, you're going to head in the wrong direction. And we've had the wrong measurements for decades. Uh, and it's driving us insane, literally. Um, like the, there, there is this abstraction. We've all been mildly brainwashed by it, where there's this capital E economy. And it's like, oh, let the capital E economy thrive. And uh, and we are its fuel. <laughs> you know? uh, and no, the opposite should be true. The capital E economy is just an abstraction and it should be fueling uh, our well-being, our family's well-being. If it fails us, then what's the purpose? You know what I mean? Like, like it's uh, so so that we have to uh, humanize the, the economy and its relationship with us. And if you make that connection, then we have a chance. Um, because right now you have all these people trumpeting economic indicators that have less and less relationship with, with most of our, our lives, increasingly as technology in particular, it just is diverging. You know, it's like we really are stuck in like a 1970s framework where it's like company does better. So company will then turn around and hire people who will then do better and thus all will be well. And now we assume all that stuff, even though it's not being true. You know, it's like, you know, it's like now it's company does better. And now it's going to automate more of its work and the extent that it hires people, like they probably won't be in that company town. They'll be, you know, like, like, you know, maybe the other side of the world. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but like there are all these presumptions that don't make any sense anymore. And, and do you think then, um, I, I mean, that makes perfect sense in wanting to reorient how we think about um, our, our incentives in capitalism, how we think about quarterly profits in terms of a short-termism versus long-termism approach. If you bubble all of that up with the central thesis that we should be investing in people, not profits, and that we should shore up labor protections for those individuals and worker protections and create income floors that are higher and more benefits and more protections, it still comes back to what you just mentioned in terms of the incentives that keep people in office or out of office. And those are the interests that lobby them, the money that goes into their campaigns and who they feel most accountable towards. And so I just wanted to juxtapose what you laid out there, which is that we are challenged by housing crises in America, certainly here in California. We are challenged by an opioid epidemic and a mental health um, endemic here in this country. And we're challenged by an economy that, as the pandemic exposed, works for some, um, but doesn't work for many or doesn't work for most. And so if you take those challenges and you pair them up with some of these alternatives to democratic processes. I was wondering if you could walk us through how those topics that are so meaty and they have so so many stakeholders, and even here in California, an intractable problem like our housing crisis, where you do have a lot of Democrats that are ostensibly like-minded in one space. If you change our democratic processes, can we expect all of a sudden out the floodgates, these policies changing along the terms that you're saying? Or is it just that the way that voters can expect outcomes from their electeds may change, but the policy problems may still persist? I'm trying to understand the, the, the way that- I, I get it, Vikram. I, I understand. Yeah. And one of the things I try and draw out in my book um, is something I learned in many ways the hard way. <laughs> so uh, so uh, it turns out that Americans don't actually vote along uh, policy lines. And Ezra Klein found this in his book, Why We're Polarized, where he found uh, that the correlation between your self-identified political alignment, whether it's conservative or liberal, and then how you feel about particular policies, let's say the government negotiating like lower drug prices on behalf of the American people, the, the correlation is actually much lower than you think. Uh, it's 0.25. You might imagine it's like a perfect one. It's like I vote along the, these policy lines. No. 
And uh, I actually experienced this in Iowa and Ohio and other places where there are Republicans who, if you were to say, hey, like, do you think you should have health care independent of your job? They're like, oh, yeah. It's like, hey, do you think the drug company is sticking to you? Yeah. If you were to say, hey, do you want socialized medicine? They would be like, heck no. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, in part because socialized medicine has been coded negatively for them. What's happened is that we've kind of gotten into this coded language problem where people will come up and if you argue for the exact same thing in different terms, all of a sudden Americans are like, I don't know, or like, sure, or maybe. Um, so the, the, one of the big lessons is that politics is tribal, where you have these uh, increasingly inflamed tribes who are looking at each other and like 42% regard the, the other side as, as evil now and like downright um, you know, they're mortal enemies, which is, by the way, a recipe for political violence and conflict and strife. I mean, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, and, and one of the things I learned is that if you go to them and just present something in new language or neutral, then they're like, you know, don't like, I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> they're, they're at least like open to it. And so when I was running for president, I delivered messages in the same way I'm pretty much talking now, because it's the only real way I know how to talk. Um, and it, it was in terms of like, you know, as accurate a description of the world as I could find, like facts and automation and technology and economics. But what it turns out that I didn't realize, Vicar, was that this facts and figures uh, delivery of mine actually just formed a new political language. (laughs) It's just like a new political language that ended up activating a different political tribe. And that political tribe was often groups of people that maybe didn't even like politics uh, or may- maybe there was like a heavier engineering bent or like there was like something where they're like, oh, like I kind of like this guy, like he's talking the way I think. Um, and, and so uh, the, the goal in many ways is to try and make it so that you don't have these two clashing tribes that are going to frankly just like, you know, not really get much done and, and, and lead us all to eventual conflict. <laughs> You try and introduce like a different dynamic um, and then you might be able to deliver some of these policies that we're talking about, um, uh, maybe in part just by calling it something different (laughs) or or like having like I've I've got and my book lays out, as you described, Vikram, like I've got goals that, you know, in my opinion, these goals are shared by the vast majority of Americans, like the majority of Americans are now for universal basic income. Now, the majority of Americans are for a different way of delivering health care. That makes sense. It is independent of employment. Um, the, uh, the majority of Americans are for lower drug prices. The problem right now is our political system is not actually designed to deliver what most of us want. <laughs> like, like that's, that, that's a fundamental problem. And, you know, you've obviously been, been uh, you know, senior in government, so you've seen it. Uh, and so the question is, how do you actually change that dynamic and make it so that you can get some very, very significant um, problem solved that most of us want to see progress on uh, that that's independent of a system that right now is structured to impede anything happening because someone is in position to lose money if you make that change. And then anyone who thinks they might lose money then descends upon the system and just freaking gums it up. And is like, I know, and, and one of the things I say in my book is like, we have a system now where it's like, I can't get anything done but I can keep you from getting anything done. <laughs> that's pretty much the name of the game now. And, and that, that's another area that you speak to, which is uh, kind of the tragic influence of corporate dollars 
and the, the consequential effects of the Supreme Court case, Citizens United, um, which opened the floodgates on all types of spending, um, some of it trackable, some of it very anonymous and, and hidden. I'm curious if you could talk about, based off of your own reflections running two major in two major cycles recently, what you view as the influence of money in politics, broadly speaking, and how that maybe informed the arrival of the thesis um, laid out in your book forward. Uh, it's one reason I'm so grateful to the people who donated to my campaign, particularly those who are new to politics, because it turns out the people who donate to political campaigns are highly unusual. Like it, it is not normal American behavior to donate to a, a politician. Uh, and if you look at the number of people who donate the maximum, which is let's call it 2,800 uh, or so, it's literally something like one tenth of 1%, uh, which makes sense because most Americans, A, don't have 2,800 lying around and B, if they do, they're, they're not going to give it to a political candidate. So one of the things you find is that political donors are highly unusual people. <laughs> They're not normal people. So you get surrounded by people who don't represent the norm at all. And that ends up naturally uh, changing your point of view because you start thinking that what, that what they're saying is representative of most people um, when really it's just representative of people who actually can play in politics, even at that level. And then that gets ratcheted up many, many times over when you're talking about professional lobbyists and organizations that they're not giving 2,800, they're giving, you know, like 280,000 or whatever the number is, 28,000, like so there's another zero attached. Um, so we're, we have a system, I think someone told me the last election cycle, there was, you know, it was an outlandish number. They said 14 billion spent on both sides. I, I, I don't know if that was correct, but um, maybe you do, Vikram, but... Uh, there's like a staggering amount of money that's getting poured into the system. And uh, if you're like an everyday American, you feel more and more on the outside of this looking and you feel more and more despondent and hopeless, really. I think that's a pretty reasonable feeling when you're looking at a vortex of money at that scale. That, that hopelessness, I think um, it does feel for for many Americans, like it's impossible to deal with, right? Uh, either, even if we get, uh, you know, the, the hundreds of fundraising emails a day of like pitching a dollar here, you can make some impact. Um, run for office, you can make some impact. Uh, start a new party, maybe you can start a new dialogue and change the political debate in this country. What do you say to, to those that uh, also feel hopeless um, and maybe found hope or inspiration in your candidacy but didn't see it maybe come to fruition in the way that they want or feel there are certain setbacks between the false choices of having to pick between rent or keeping the heat on. You know, this despair that is, in many respects, uh, the formation of why you've made the decision that you had to leave the Democratic Party and start anew um, is also a despair that re- it, it, many people use to reject politics altogether and only sort of deepen into their own entrenched tribes without civic engagement or without taking the steps that you as a first time candidate a few years ago took to lean in and, and roll up your sleeves. What, what's your message to them and how can we make sure civic engagement um, isn't or, or a lack of engagement is an excuse for a form of a civic identity in this country when the, the heat and the vitriol is at a fever pitch? Thanks, Vikram. The, the fact is, uh, politics can be very, very depressing. You know, like I, I understand that if people do decide to pull back, particularly social media, you know, you definitely need a break from that stuff. But uh, but the one of the reasons I was so uh, compelled to write this book is that I wanted to unpack the experiences I had as a candidate who went pretty deep into the bowels of the system and then come back with like genuine lessons learned. You know what I mean? Um, where 
that, and I think I say in the introduction to my book, it's like you get these emails, they say to donate, like some of us do, you know, you vote and then you still feel like shit's not working. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like that's, uh, you know, I, I wanted to find like an honest path. And one of the things that, you know, I, I am like, I, I think I'm pretty good at is like, is trying to be practical where, um, I mean, people thought that my running for president was highly impractical, but it turns out it's pretty practical. You know, we, we um, uh, made seven debate stages and changed the national discourse on cash relief. And uh, I personally lobbied, you know, 65 members of Congress and like felt like we played a role in getting um, some of those relief checks out. Um, so we, you know, like, I think most people would regard uh, my presidential campaign as having been uh, surprisingly successful. Um, and now if you look at what we can do in real life to try and make serious changes, and this is not the only path. There are a lot of things people do, like, you know, love it, love activism, um, and, uh, you know, like doing things locally, awesome, um, do, doing things within uh, one party or another, great. Um, but to me, like the, the most urgent task that we can accomplish in real life that would actually make these changes is unlocking some of our legislators from these perverse incentives uh, where, and, and that's what my book tries to do is like, okay, why is it working? Oh, it's not designed to work. Or at least the incentives are actually going to reward people for uh, retreat. Like essentially being unreasonable becomes reasonable in a system of incentives like the one that we, we have. <laughs> and so if you're looking at it being like, why are they so unreasonable and obstinate? Like, why is it not happening? It's like, actually the system is kind of rewarding that behavior. Um, and so the most high impact thing we can do is try and make it so it doesn't reward that behavior. Like it rewards more, uh, again, compromise, reasonableness, like working uh, across the aisle. And I know, and, and this is something too, it's like, I know some people it's like, 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 just trust me when I say I get it where like Yang's not just singing from some outdated bipartisan hymnal. Like I, I get the issues that have overrun, like the, the parties are different from each other. <laughs> But but the but the incentive structure is changeable like that. That's like the magic discovery I found, like the Alaska ballot initiative that unlocked Senator Murkowski and enabled her to vote her conscience uh, cost seven million dollars, which now I know Alaska is a cheap state. You know, there are some states that are going to be a lot more expensive than that. <laughs> but uh, but it, but it, but if we can run around unlocking legislators, that is a deeply practical thing we can do that would strengthen our democracy and its a, its chance to survive, but also increase our chances of getting big things done. And and in terms of that incentive structure, um, if we were to uh, play that out now, I imagine that the next few months, or, or rather next few years and and cycles, um, in order to bring this to life, or your plan and your solution on the incentives to life it would require qualifying um, certain ballot measures in states to change their electoral processes, right? To, to invoke open primaries in certain jurisdictions, to invoke ranked choice voting, like we have here in California and other jurisdictions. Can you just walk us through what you think the roadmap goes from, from the, the publish, publication of this book and this idea and to your end state vision of how this actually ends up unlocking those changes in the next few years? I would love to, Vikram. And first, I, 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 to outline the structures and the next steps, uh, I want to take a, a step back to the Constitution, which is kind of good fun. So the Constitution has absolutely nothing about political parties in it. 
Uh, and the founding fathers actually were very anti-partisan. George Washington didn't like them. John Adams said the worst possible scenario would be a, you had two great parties as clashing, if that sounds familiar. <laughs> so, so if you look at the way that these elections are run, it's all at the state level. Everything is determined by the states because the Constitution is silent on political parties, has nothing to do with closed primaries. So, um, so states can do whatever they want. Um, the party processes are controlled by the party. Um, so if you were to want to make a change, it's all at the state level. Half of the states have ballot initiatives where if enough people get together and say, hey, let's make this process change, then 50.1% can give it a thumbs up. The other half of the states, it's determined at the state legislature. So the roadmap between now and November 22 is we run around, uh, figure out which states that have ballot initiatives make the most sense um, and that we think we have a, the greatest chance of success. Uh, and then we try and run those ballot initiatives and unlock more legislators. Um, so it's all at the state level. And this is in some ways I describe it as like a weak point in the system or like an exhaust port in the Death Star. Where if you look at the problems at the national level, if I said, hey, Congress, like, you know, pa pass this measure, it's like, well, you know, Congress can't pass a, a lot of things right now. Um, but can enough of us get together and, like, make a ballot initiative happen and, you know, pick a state that has these, uh, Utah, Missouri, Massachusetts? Yeah, we can do that. Like, that, that's actually entirely plausible. <laughs> so, uh, and, like, would that have potentially profound ramifications in terms of our national politics? It really might, <laughs> you know, like if, if you had, you know, half a dozen senators who were like, I can do what I want now. And then someone comes to them and says, hey, you know, you want to protect election integrity? You want to like keep keep uh, state um, state officials from getting fired for like, you know, not, not wanting to certify a particular election result in a particular way? It's like, yeah, that, that would be a worthy, <laughs> like a, a worthy project. Um, so, so that, that's what the roadmap looks like, Vikram. And, and that, that I, I really do. I have to say, I'm sure there are a lot of people that when you, before you jump into your first race said, Andrew, I don't know if that's a good idea. You're foolish for thinking it. And then you, you built the movement that you did. I'm sure when you were talking to policy advisors uh, about UBI in the early days before um, mayors around the country, like Michael Tubbs and others started leaning into it and celebrating it with policy implementations and pilots, people probably said, oh, Andrew, I don't know if that's, that's the thing you should tell. So I, I respect the the, the the bullish nature of running with an idea, defending it and, and bringing it to life so that way we can try new outcomes because otherwise we could all just, you know, navel gaze and talk. So I say this, I offer this following question with the respect, the respect of the fact that you have put yourself out there and tried. But if you take a look at Congress today and you take a look at the fact that of all the interest groups who want the child tax credit permanently extended, who want home care services and disability services extended in this country, who want in the infrastructure package um, a greening of our, our, our upgrades as we put, invest in those upgrades, um, want better wage and uh, wage protections and benefits for domestic workers. All of those interests will still, even if we unlock through your ballot measure process and unlock more candidates who are a little bit more reasonable and beholden to their electorate, not just corporate checks, you still in front of them, if they were to have this package, this budget reconciliation package, the, the single most expansive transformation of the, the safety net since arguably World War II, you would still have some people who believe a little bit more about X interests or a little bit more about Y interests. And unless you reform things like the filibuster, or unless you are able to deconflict those corporate interests or those community interests, you're still going to have some amount of friction and inertia, no? 
Oh, I would agree. Oh, by the way, I think you probably saw in the book, Vic, where I'm like, I think we should get rid of the filibuster. Also, nothing in the Constitution about that. It's just like a strange Senate rule they adopted. <laughs> so so, um, so I'm, I'm for trying to make uh, good things more possible. Uh, and is this process change I'm championing, like the, the cure-all? No. Um, but one of the things that we have to look at and, and say, and you know, the, the real issue that's going on right now is you have 50 Democratic senators and zero room for error. And so then you're looking and you'd be like, OK, I've got these you know, two senators who have very distinct points of view and they, they're controlling everything. Um, so if you had a dynamic where there were actually one or two Republican senators who were like, you know, I like some of this stuff, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm down like that. That's where we are at as a country where like if, if you look at this duopoly um, and then you say we're going to essentially count one of the you know, sides completely out of um, these conversations because, again, they're now just so beholden to um, leadership, um, then you're left trying to get things done here. Uh, and, it, you know, like it it's it seems like it's a massive struggle. I mean, we, we also have to look up to and know. This past election was razor, razor close, where if 15,000 more Georgians vote for David Perdue uh, in the, the first election, uh, not the first election, but like the, the race in November, there's no runoff. And we're not even having a conversation about what's possible. Like it's 49, 51, uh, you know, like the, the, the like Democrats got control uh, of the Senate by like the, the, the slimmest of margins possible. And a lot of, you know, I was in Georgia trying to like help make that stuff happen. Um, uh, and I, I'm now convinced that we have this system that is not going to produce what we want it to. Um, and it's going to eventually lead us to uh, unthinkable times in the United States of America. Um, and so we, we should be looking at international models um, and, and when I talked before about how the founding fathers didn't like political parties, but they, if there were going to be political parties, they would be many more than two. I guarantee you that. And if you look at the UK, five parties, Germany, seven parties, Sweden, eight parties, Netherlands, 18 parties. Right now, a lot of people are concerned about rising authoritarianism in the United States, which I am too. We have a uniquely vulnerable system to that because you only have two major parties. And if one of them succumbs to bad leadership, then the safeguards are essentially non-existent. I mean, and then everyone has to fall in line. If you had seven parties and then one of them succumbed to terrible leadership, then you look at it and say, wow, that party has lost, it, lost its mind. But that's not an existential problem. <laughs> you know, you know, unless they get three other parties to, like, uh, to, to fall in line. Um, so we built a uniquely vulnerable system. Uh, you know, hopefully there are people here who you know, like are um, into either uh, design thinking or operations or something. We built a uniquely vulnerable system. It's deeply tribal. And people arrive on the scene and you can agree with one side much, much more than the other and still think, OK, this system is deficient. <laughs> like this, this system is not designed to produce results. And it's also designed to fail us at an epic catastrophic scale. And, you know, we spent some time thinking about process and the design of our democratic outcomes in terms of getting representatives there. I wanted to ask, um, drawing on your experiences campaigning um, across the country and more recently in New York, um, what you felt about the design and process of the other side of, of governing, which is when, you know, bills pass and laws, legislation becomes laws and people are actually affected. Um, specifically, what I mean by that is here in California, 
We've heard that millions of dollars that have flowed out of the federal government through the American Rescue Plan and, and previously the CARES Act under the last administration have still gone untapped um, because of, of basic taxes on time when people navigating these processes, you know, the child. You know, the oh, child yeah. Yeah. This is one reason I can't like this is one reason I'm just so passionate about cash relief. It's like, you know, there, there's like a renter's assistance program that I think 67 billion got allocated to. And then they checked eight months later and 83 percent of it had not actually reached a renter. And, you know, set up, it's like, but but I set up the website. And if you jump through these seven hoops like that, you know, you might have done it. It's like the average renter is just like has their head down just trying to figure it out. Like they don't know what where the website is like they're time starved you know the, the rest of it like and, and that's one of the major problems with our government and the design talk about another design problem is that our government has set up these resources like on like a shelf that's you know five feet above our heads and like jump for it jump for it and then and you're like oh you didn't jump for it <laughs> you know and people are like what like especially the people that need it most you know what i mean um and so like it, it's just it's designed to be punitive, really. Um, you know, like there are all these studies about how ridiculously difficult to navigate our programs and bureaucracy um, uh, are. And, uh, and you know, it, it's, uh, it's almost intentional. I talked to a California state legislator who said this is what brought him around to wanting to, to move to cash relief more broadly and universal basic income because he said, like, our programs are just so onerous and so dehumanizing that just by getting out of people's way and getting resources in their hands would be in much better shape. But when the bureaucracy fails and 83% of renters assistance doesn't reach people, like no one's really held accountable. You know, it's like half the people that are most directly impacted have no idea like that it even happened. Yeah. And, and so I, I assume that, that you would say as an extension of that, in the same way that you're proposing, we need to overhaul our thinking of the incentive structures of getting electeds into office we would similarly need to, to redesign the thinking of how the implementation of a policy, whether it's cash relief, rental assistance, unemployment, is accessed by individuals of the, throughout the, the country. Oh, yeah. I mean, like what I say in my book is that we should be being treated as stakeholders and human beings uh, and as, um, like, you know, owners, not supplicants. Like right now, our government treats us as supplicants, whether it's like a military vet in Iowa who's waiting for hip replacement surgery and just writes letter after letter and the VA ignores him. You know, like, I mean, like this is playing out all over the country uh, and people are getting increasingly restive and fed up. Like one of the, the very difficult things that's going on right now, Vikram, is that there's like a basic thesis that we have an understanding that's like, hey, I do a good job. You like it. I get reelected. I do a bad job. You don't like it. I, get, I, I don't get reelected. That stuff is applying less and less. Um, you know, there, there is like a Michael Grunwald said that we're in a postmodern era of politics where like it's not whether, how I do is just how I communicate to you. And so <laughs> like, like the dudes are just going to be communicated to different people. And then like the reality on the ground, which you think should be the difference maker now is receding in importance. And this is a very, very destructive possibility because then it makes it almost impossible for government to actually be able to even deliver and make its own case to say, look, I did this thing. It really helped you. Like, you know, don't, don't we deserve more of it? Um, but like that. And, and so in order to be able to make that case, you have to really ensure that the things you say you're delivering actually get to the people that they're supposed to get to. That's absolutely right. And 
I, you know, I want to, um, we, for, for everyone who's tuned in and still with us here, um, in about 10 minutes, we're going to turn over to uh, audience Q&A. So please do um, put your comments or questions in the chat so that way we can get to them. Um, Andrew, I wanted to switch gears a little bit in terms of the recent experience that you may have had um, at the municipal level in New York, obviously running for president versus running for mayor versus this new venture. You get to talk to a lot of people. And earlier in this conversation, you said the language of Andrew Yang in the kind of the way you articulate things, your disposition, your demeanor connected with a lot of folks over the last couple of cycles. At the same time, we, we also acknowledge both in the book and in this conversation that the, the politics of language in this country have gotten extremely divisive. And, uh, you know, President Biden himself ran a little bit on a platform of, of tamping down that heat and creating a little bit more of a compassionate decency among one another. Um, I'm curious, what is the best way to continue to invest in just a, an appropriate language of politics? Obviously, this book lays out that one way to do that is to change incentive structures. And I hear you on that. But when it comes to just the retail dialogue, when you're in someone's home, when you're talking to a shopkeeper, when you're talking to um, people torn between uh, criminal justice reform and wanting fewer black and brown people in jail versus um, Asian Americans who are rightly afraid of hate crimes happening in their streets. There's a lot of natural policies and values that pit people together into these series of false choices and language naturally buttresses that in a way that will keep them in their camps. How have you found when you campaigned or even post campaigning that when you think about language and connecting with people that you want to bring something different to help minimize that heat? Well, uh, what, what an important question, Vikram. Um, I, you know, what, what's funny is um, I'm a huge proponent of ranked choice voting, obviously. Uh, and ranked choice voting was in effect in New York City. So um, it, it theoretically should have made us all more congenial, <laughs> less negative. Um, the, the, there is a real difficulty, um, I think, particularly locally, where one of the things that was a, a dynamic that did surprise me uh, was how zero-sum a lot of local politics seems, where people feel like if you're for one thing, then you're against this, and if you're for one group, you're against the other group. And and that was something that I did both uh, struggle with and also was surprised by. So uh, how do we improve that? I mean, I I think uh, the, the key really is to try and get people um, in a position where they're a bit more optimistic uh, about what we can deliver. I can't tell, how, tell you how many people in New York City just ask me this very basic question, which is like, look, people come by our neighborhood, ask us for votes every four years, and then they leave and nothing ever changes. Like, why are you any different? I had hundreds of people say that to me, you know? And, and so that that's like the fundamental challenge is like, can we actually deliver to people? That's actually a big theme of my book too, which is that like politicians are increasingly just becoming uh, weather veins for people's emotions who can't actually change anything important. Like, like we're, we're going to win, we're going to lose, we go. Like our job is just to make you feel okay um, while things get worse. Like, like that's the new role of the politics. <laughs> you know, and, and there, there are a lot of people who are becoming increasingly cynical as a result. And I, I get it. Yeah, you know, uh, we'll, we'll end on a, a final question before we go over to, to the audiences. Um, one, one thing that, uh, is very clear in terms of how we think about the next few years is um, 
that, that, that the heir apparent and the Republican Party who will be the front runner and has certainly been campaigning already. I think as recently as, as this past weekend in Iowa, uh, former President Donald Trump seems like he's on the verge of reemerging again for a run. Um, I'm curious how you think your vision of a forward party, a new party, and what some haters, and I'll call them haters because, you know, it's subject to, to personal opinion, but some haters might say, Andrew, at a time where Trumpism still um, is, is deeply rooted in the Republican Party and Democrats are in a battle for ideas, you're walking away, you're creating a new sort of potential spoiler dynamic. Your book speaks to that, defends the fact that it wouldn't be spoiler if it's a ranked choice dynamic. But given that we are entrenched, given that we do have a huge risk, Democrats would argue, in Donald Trump of reemerging in the next few years, what do you say? to those that say that maybe abandoning the party right now is not the right move, Andrew? Well, thank you, Vikram. Um, I, and this has been a frustration of mine, truly, is that I come up and say, hey, like we're starting a popular movement. Democrats, Republicans, independents are welcome to try to fix the incentives uh, of our system and, by the way, make it more resistant to authoritarianism because right now it's actually very susceptible. <laughs> and, then, uh, and, then, and then people... Immediately fast forward to 2024 and me running for president again and me being like the next generation, like, you know, Jill Stein or Ralph Nader or whatever it is like. Uh, and and I, it's just I look at it and be like, OK, that's leaping forward several steps <laughs> and also has, like has nothing to do with what I'm actually saying that we need to do, which is to try and reform our incentives, not in 24, but right now and in 22, because we only have one cycle. I mean, if someone looks at the the uh, return of Trump and is deeply concerned about it, I agree. I too am deeply concerned about it. I think we should be running like mad to try and shore up our institutions so that they can actually survive uh, a potential contested election in 24. And, you know, you can look at this and, and say like, okay, there. Are, I, I'm going to suggest there are several things we should be doing. Um, now, if someone says, hey, like, you know, we should be strengthening, uh, you know, one party, um, you know, that you support, I'm like, yeah, go for it. Um, if if you think that you, we should be reformatting our uh, political incentives so that maybe some more politicians can vote their conscience, I definitely think we should be doing that as quickly as possible. Trying to make our system more multipolar. Yes. Like there, it's not like an either or it's like, a, you know, like, like a both and. Um, but I, I do think that there's just like this reflexive knee jerk, um, like fear. And it's something that, that people on some level, I, I understand it. It's like, okay, I get it. But, but, uh, but one of the things that I find frustrating about it is, is that it kind of projects onto me qualities that I don't think I possess, <laughs> you know, like, like it makes me seem like, um, like someone who doesn't have my, like, you know, my head on. I mean, I've got my head on pretty firmly. Like I, I, I see what we need to do and, you know, we're going to fight like mad to try and get it done. Not in 24, but in 22. You, um, we're, 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 we're going to head over to some of the audience questions. Um, and I, I think that outside of whether you want to um, run in the future or we're in the ballot phase mode in which we need to change some of the laws in the states to, to realize your vision laid out in the book. Um, you know, one, one participant today asks that, you know, there have been other attempts to create other political parties or political processes. 
Um, some of them have not been so successful. You just spoke to this a moment ago with the, you know, the vague analogies to, to other parties, Green Party, et cetera. How viable do you think it is um, to be able to break through uh, this vision of the current duopoly that you speak to? Or is it not even about viability? Is it that like you deeply believe, regardless of what happens on the other side, you ought to try? Open primaries and ranked choice voting are the skeleton key to unlock us. And it is 100% feasible for us to get this done in states around the country. It already happened in Alaska, uh, and it happened more or less natively. Um, so, it, And if you did have open primaries and ranked choice voting, then you also could have more political perspectives emerge. Right now, 62% of Americans say they want a third party. 60% think both parties are out of touch. Like The energy around this is sky high. And I'm going to suggest, too, to the folks who like, like it, it's a very, very tough situation right now. Check it out. So Republicans have been uh, overtaken by this anti-institutionalist fervor as embodied by Donald Trump. It's coming in this direction. Democrats are uh, now uh, in the position where they represent kind of like the, the institutions themselves. But those institutions are not exactly humming. You know, they're like having issues. And, that, and then that's the that's like the, the place that we're heading. Um, now, you can have your own perspective as to who wins that particular uh, clash. Uh, I, what our argument is um, from the Ford Party is like, hey, these institutions do have problems, actually designed not to work, and we need to modernize them um, and upgrade them as quickly as possible. Like that, to me, is the message. And what's interesting about this is that if you have this anti-institutionalist fervor on one side, um, you can actually channel a lot of that energy uh, because a lot of these folks are, you know, like, frankly, like they, they like someone like me just because they don't seem like like a, a machine politician or part of the establishment. You know, they, they, there's a lot of like energy outside here that's like trying to find a like a, a direction. We a lot of that fervor is definitely um, stoked, amplified harmed by, supported by whatever word choice you want to use by um, online platforms that have an incredible scale and reach to them, um, no matter what that platform is saying in any given moment. Um, and one of our audience questions wants to dig into social media a little bit more. Um, what's your view, your general feelings to social media in the current political process? And maybe zooming out a bit, given that there have been recent congressional hearings um, about the, the the impact of some of these platforms and how they share information and misinformation. Um, how did that affect you on the race or on the trail rather? And, and has that sharpened your views on the regulation of tech um, in terms of democratic outcomes that you, you, you propose in the book? Uh, so what I, I talked about the incentives earlier with you, Vikram, the incentives get compounded by media because the media organizations separate us into ideological camps. Uh, and then social media pours gasoline on the whole thing. Uh, misinformation and negative sentiment spread six times more powerfully and quickly on social media than the truth or positivity. Uh, and it, it is driving us insane. Um, uh, where you, If you go into social media, like it, it, it really will mess with your mind. And I've seen it, um, you know, uh, up close. So if you project forward, if there are massive uh, conflicts and political violence and civil unrest coming, social media will have had a lot to do with it. Um, you also can throw in the fact that there are foreign actors that uh, that are just there running sites trying to like piss us off at each other. You know, like someone told me that if you looked at like, you know, the, it was like top 10 evangelical sites, apparently like 
three of the top five are run by foreign bots. <laughs> you know, they're just there to like get people ginned up. So, uh, and it's working. You know what I mean? So, so that that's the climate. Um, our government's hopelessly behind the curve. Uh, it's in part because we, we do have a gerontocracy where um, most of the decision makers are uh, in their 60s, 70s, or even 80s now. Um, they don't really natively understand a lot of these issues. Um, and it may destroy us. It's certainly raising the possibility that we are going to be torn apart. As you can tell, I'm very positive on social media. Well, so the, so the thing I'm, I'm um, I, I use social media a lot because I'm trying to build a popular movement. And I am self-consciously and deliberately positive um, where I'm going to say 90, you know, 8% of my stuff is like very, very upbeat um, in part because I want to be like something of a haven. Um, uh, but it's not it, but it's not what naturally gets rewarded online. Um, like negativity and attacks get rewarded online. Um, you know, you, you did speak to the representation issue earlier, both in terms of the, the literacy uh, of of the current elected body doing regulation, trying to regulate or think through smart regulations for brand new technologies. Some of that is, is age, some of that is just understanding of, of products, some of it is generational, but a lot of it is also just how we think about representation in this country. Um, I know that uh, as, as a major um, Asian American candidate yourself, uh, I'm sure that that has significant consequences for people, um, young people who are looking upwards and thinking about life in civic um, engagement or civic rooms themselves, whether they want to be in the boardroom, whether they want to be parents, whether they want to be um, ministers and churchgoers, representation can matter. And you even said a few moments ago that assuming that Andrew Yang is at the helm of this Ford party, as opposed to other entrants coming in and really fomenting a movement is also sort of a, a myth you want to push back against. Can you just reflect a little bit more about what you think is vital in terms of representation of new entrants getting into politics, either reflecting on um, the fact that you come from the AAPI community or reflecting on what you'd like to see in terms of true representation to address, whether it's a technological issue or a diversity gap issue. Well, I, I'm certainly very proud to have um, been the first Asian American man to run for president as a Democrat. And when I, I meet Asian Americans on the trail, uh, you know, they sometimes bring their kids for pictures. Uh, and I'll also confess to people on, on this particular event that uh, it was one of my motivations for running is I thought I could get on the debate stage. And I thought like, hey, having an Asian American on the debate stage would be enormously meaningful, having grown up in this country, uh, obviously uh, Asian myself. Um, the, the system right now is not going to make it so that different groups are represented uh, anywhere close to shares of population. I will say by the numbers, Asian Americans are the most uh, underrepresented of any community, <laughs> like relative to our numbers. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, you know, like I did not grow up in a household that talked about American politics. Uh, I don't think Asian Americans are told that politics is a natural path for us or a promising career path. Uh, my parents were quite negative when I talked about heading in this direction, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and so I, I think that that's pretty normal in Asian American communities. Um, and so th that there are various barriers to overcome, but like the single biggest barrier for a lot of folks is just you know, like, it's going to be very, very difficult for a lot of people to get the resources to actually run a successful campaign. Um, and that's particularly true for women, for underrepresented minorities, um, I, it's not going to look like the American population unless we did something fairly dramatic. 
like, for example, as I say in my book, we should just give everyone 100 democracy dollars and you can give to whoever you want. And then all of a sudden, uh, people from different communities would have higher levels of resources to be able to contend. Um, so it's going to be an ongoing problem. And I will say, too, I feel a lot of responsibility as a highly visible Asian American um, in the public eye because I know there aren't that many of us. Uh, and, and so I, I do want to continue to try and set a positive example. Absolutely. Um, and as a, as a South Asian individual um, in politics as well, whose parents once doubted it, but now have their support. I, 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 Vikram, I, I know you must have been the only, uh, you know, person uh, uh, from the community in a lot of these rooms. So I appreciate what you've done. No, no. And it, it, as you know, it's all it's all sort of built on on the support and the ideas that we get from our families um, and our neighborhoods. Two final questions um, before we, we close out here from the audience as well. I'll ask them both quickly. Um, a lot of our political identity and policies are um, kind of somewhat associated from a cultural perspective. What would you say is sort of the culture that you're trying to define in the Ford uh, party? And the, the last one, you spoke to what needs to happen between now and 2022 to get some ballot measures qualified and start um, changing or enacting the changes you'd like to see. Wh what state is number one? And then where will you start putting your, your emphasis um, on the other side of this conversation? Well, I, I love these questions so much. So we're right now lining up the states uh, for various ballot initiatives. Uh, Utah is a very promising state. Uh, we may return to Massachusetts uh, because, believe it or not, they actually had ranked choice voting on their ballot last year and it didn't pass. And so there's some energy around trying to run it back. Um, the, the culture will be announcing various states. We're, we hope to have something like six to ten um, states that we're, we're targeting um, and if we win a few of those, change the course of history, you know, like all oh, just requires a bunch of us getting together and, and putting our backs into it. Um, in terms of the culture, and this is really important because, you know, you realize that politics is tribal. Um, and so I, I want the forward party to be very unifying, positive, uplifting, even funny sometimes. Like one, one of the tenets we have is grace and tolerance, which is that. No, other Americans are not our enemies. Uh, you know, we love everyone. Um, we, we genuinely want to be a bridge and a group that people can uh, rally around and get behind um, and, and feel like uh, they're welcome, really. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk to just about anyone um, who wants to have an honest conversation. Um, and uh, I think that kind of culture is one of the things that's missing in politics right now. And, and I do understand it, but it's one function of the fact that we only have two polls. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, like it's, and so hopefully we can be this, um, uh, this positive fun, even um, force in, in American politics. Um, that's also very practical. I think there's going to be something of an Asian American strain because a lot of Asian Americans probably grew up like I did, and maybe you did, uh, uh, Vikram, where it's like they weren't brought up to be super political. Um, and then th this can become a, a channel or a vessel for that energy for us to feel like we can build it from the ground up. Love that. And um, final question that we have here at the Commonwealth Club in, in our in forum series is um, Return of the Mac was your campaign song. What's your next camp? No, I'm just joking. Um, what, uh, what is your 60, in all seriousness, if in 60 second summation of your idea to change the world? We talked a lot about it, but I want to hand it over to you to kind of underscore that in, in your final thoughts here. Yeah, I would love to. Um, we are being set up to fail uh, and turn on each other. And that's what we need to change. 
The way we can change it is by transforming the political incentives of a critical mass of our leaders through open primaries and ranked choice voting, which would also enable new perspectives to emerge and a higher degree of political dynamism to help us through one of the most difficult times in American history. So UBI is the what, open primaries and ranked choice voting will be the how, and the Forward Party is the movement to help get that done. Would absolutely love your help and support at forwardparty.com. But yeah, let's fight for a future. We'll actually be proud to leave to our kids because this system will not deliver that to us. Well, we want to thank everybody for joining today um, and join me in thanking Andrew Yang for joining in forum at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, a reminder that the book that we talked about today, Forward Notes on uh, the Future of Our Democracy, that one right there can be purchased through your preferred bookseller. And if you want to watch more uh, virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club in efforts to make it virtual um, through in-person or virtual programming, please visit Commonwealth org slash online. I'm Vikram Iyer, and I have to say that no matter if you thought these ideas were off the wall, if you thought they were important, if you thought they were revolutionary, or that you're you're cynical about it, the point is that Andrew Yang is here today putting those ideas out there. You stuck your neck out there. You're representing a, a new movement and a new set of ideas. And for that, um, there can be no hater to, to continue to stir and expand the, the marketplace of ideas. So thank you, Andrew Yang, for taking the time today and hope to connect with you soon. Thank you, Vikram. Such a pleasure. You have a future in television, my friend. <laughs> Take care. You've been listening to a podcast of Inform, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at informsf.org.